So far this summer, uh, Pastor Steve and I are preaching primarily from stories of the New Testament Gospels. By the way, Steve Goyer is away this morning because he is with his family. He's just, as you may have heard, a new grandfather again. So he is with uh, a newborn child and, and their family up in Knoxville. He'll be back here this afternoon for today's concert. But uh, so, as I said, we're looking at stories from the Gospels today, the Gospel of Mark, story that we've heard before. And I must say, it's, it's a story like this that changed my life as a teenager. Um, about the time I was 15, 16 years old, I started reading the pages of the New Testament. It was a it was a good news for modern man. You remember those with the little stick figures? And I started reading the stories and the words of Jesus, and it was like his life left off the pages, speaking to me. So powerful, it changed my life. And this is one of those stories that was especially important to me in shaping how I understood God. Um, It's a story that is told by Mark in great detail. It's it's as if he had consulted eyewitness sources. And uh, you'll notice frequently in the story the, the crowds that are surrounding Jesus are mentioned. The crowds literally are pressing in, the Greek says, pressing like a herd of animals being compressed into a corral. They're pressing all around Jesus. They're, they're curious. Maybe some of them are skeptical. Some of them maybe are, are coming toward a sense of commitment. Some are hungry. Some are on the periphery playing it safe. I think Mark tells these stories with the intention that we would find ourselves in the crowd. Somewhere in that crowd, we are there watching and listening to what is happening. And as this story has to do with the healing ministry of Jesus, I must say that I could not read and study and pray over this text over these last several days without thinking of my own personal context. What I bring to the story, because whether I was 16 or now reverse those numbers, um, we bring a context to our encounter with Scripture. And so here is mine. Uh, I share some of this with you. Um, We've been listening to a health care debate. The Supreme Court just made a decision related to health care in our nation. Our governor and legislature has been negotiating, it was maybe the nicest word I could use, what, how we will pay for or not pay for health care for Floridians. And that's a part of the context that we all share. 
Also, my wife works, she is a health care provider for homeless people. So I hear stories about what it's like to be poor and trying to get health care. And I also know that many of you are health care providers, or you work for an insurance company, or you're a lawyer. And so many of us are involved in what we might call the health care industry in various ways. Actually, many of my immediate family are uh, nurses, uh, physician assistants, uh, doctors, um, administrators in offices, so many of my own family. And I, I have come to respect and see the work that many of you do in this field and know what a difference it makes and how committed you are, how much you care about other people or you wouldn't be in this business. That's a part of our context. Here's more. Uh, Just in the last couple of weeks, a dear friend of mine was near death. And I was with others in a hospital hallway, literally bowed down, praying that God would spare her life feeling so out of control, feeling like how in the world can I face the possibility that I might lose this friend. The doctors seemed to be not much reassurance. They felt like it it didn't look good. But somehow God did pull her through. She's still struggling, but she's still here. In a way, it felt like a miracle that she had made it through. But I'll never forget that sense of helplessness that I I felt in praying for her. And I think also about a child of mine who's also in need of health care services. And fortunately, treatment is available, and it's good treatment. And... Even more fortunately, I have insurance, and it's pretty good insurance. And yet, and yet there is this tension in our system between good health outcomes and profit. And, and so we're caught in that tension of what, who's going to pay for what and how good a treatment do you really want. And can you afford? And who will get that kind of good treatment? And then, in the midst of all that, I've been reading a book about Paul Farmer. Paul Farmer is the founder of Partners in Health, an organization that began its work in Haiti. That's why I'm reading the book, because a month from now, I'll be going to Haiti, uh, working in the area right around a hospital that Paul Farmer's organization built in Maribelay. And Paul Farmer, in the book, talks about the frustration of having to make choices, of having such limited resources and overwhelming needs, and sometimes easy to criticize the choices he was making and at one point, he 
told someone, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm just fighting a long defeat. And yet, he said, I will keep fighting. Health care, to me, is one of the four great challenges that face the church in America. One of the four, the other three being how we deal with violence and how we steward our creation and how we build economic opportunity and justice for all. But today's story is a story of healing. So let us listen now for the word of God. When Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a great crowd gathered around him and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on him, on her, so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. And now it was that there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better but rather grew worse. She'd heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhaging stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that the power had gone out from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble this teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow them except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, they saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why do you make such a commotion? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk around, for she was 12 years of age. At this, 
they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly ordered them that no one should know about this. And he told them to give her, the girl, something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. So, so in our text, Jesus crosses the lake. He comes to the area around Capernaum, one of his uh, home, home bases, you might say. And there is the leader of the synagogue pacing on the beach, looking out, when is he going to get here? I need help. I've got an emergency. My daughter is sick. I don't know what to do. It looks like she may die. And finally, the boat appears on the horizon. The crowd is swelling. I'm thinking that Jairus is trying to figure out how to get first in the quay, how to get his attention right away. And so he, he comes up to Jesus. Maybe he's using his social status as the leader of the synagogue. But he comes and he gets Jesus' attention and says, please come, I need your help. The language is, is dramatic. He, he is begging Jesus for help. He's down on the ground, the leader of the synagogue, bowing before this renegade rabbi. All pride is flown out the window, all sense of propriety or, or who's right or wrong in these theological debates All of that is out the window. All he cares about is this little girl of his. This girl that perhaps he coached in soccer, attended dance recitals, helped her with her homework. She's the apple of his eye, and now he's afraid he's going to lose her. And so he is at a place that perhaps the poet Yeats describes when he says things fall apart the center cannot hold and things were falling apart for Jairus and he got Jesus to start on the way back home with him and then and then as much as he advocated for his daughter there is a contrast a woman comes to Jesus who has no advocate in fact She's unclean. The sickness she has makes her ineligible to even be in social situations. She can't have a job. She can't go to school. She can't be with a family. She can't have children. She's an absolute failure socially. She's an outcast. She's morally unclean. And so that is why she has to sneak up on Jesus and surreptitiously try to gain God's help. The doctors have not been able to cure her even though she spent every dime she had. Back then in in their medical care they they felt that if you could keep the four humors or the four fluids in balance the being blood phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. If you could just somehow keep that in balance, that would contribute to health. And they used all sorts of things to treat their different maladies. Frankincense, 
was an antiseptic. Myrrh was an anti-inflammatory agent. Pomegranate, the flowers of pomegranates were used to treat dysentery and ulcers. Tarragon was a sleep aid. Cabbage was used for headaches and sprains. Hyssop for arthritis. And so she tried everything and had nothing left. And so she risked probably physical punishment by coming into that crowd because she was desperate. Desperate after 12 years. As long as the little girl had been alive, she had been sick and alone. And so Jesus notices her. He stops. He says, something's happened here. The disciples notice the obvious, people all around him, but they miss the miraculous. Something wonderful has happened. The woman gets more than she hopes for. She just wanted to stop the bleeding, and Jesus notices her and gives her peace and calls her daughter. You are part of me. As much as Lachlan is a part of our family, this woman is a part of our family too. So rather than Jesus being defiled by the unclean woman, Jesus cleans up the woman and makes her whole. And, and so in that, she was hoping just for maybe a secret blessing, just to sort of slink away. But Jesus wouldn't have it. He insisted on knowing her, on meeting her, on letting her know that she could go the rest of her life and, and her blessing wasn't stolen. It was gladly poured out upon her by one who loved her and named her as daughter. About that time, the messengers come from the girl's house, from Jairus' house, and say, it's too late, little girl's gone. She's gone. We've lost her. I would not blame Jairus if he were extremely bitter. Why did you let this no-count woman slow you down, Jesus? What was so important about this unclean woman who hadn't done anything with her life that you would slow down the healing process for my daughter after all the religion that I've practiced? After all I've done for other people, what was so wrong with just going to the urgent need? She'd been sick for 12 years. She could have waited a little longer. I wouldn't have blamed him for feeling that way. But Jesus maybe knew that Jairus needed to see a woman be made well. Because Jairus was going to face a crisis in his own faith. His daughter was reported dead. And Jesus says to, her, to him, don't fear, don't keep on fearing, believe, trust. How do you do that? How do you do that when your world is just blown up in your face? 
How do you keep trusting when it looks like there is no hope anymore? But Jesus challenges Jairus. Have more faith than you have fear. And and Jairus had to decide, was he going to give in to his fear or was he going to trust? They ended up going to the home and ultimately Jesus utters these amazing words in Aramaic, it is reported, Talitha kum, little girl, arise. And so she did. And not only was her life given back, but also the life of her father and mother. And so, these are twin stories of amazing healing. And in our context, they make me wonder about health care, about what God is like and God's desire for us to be healthy. God's desire to give us wholeness. How does that happen in a modern society? What responsibility do we have one to another to live out as followers of Jesus a sense of communal wholeness? There is in this story a scandal, a scandal of the availability of the grace of God for the highest and the lowest, for the deserving, for the undeserving, for those who might have enough money to pay, and for those who had no more money. A scandal of availability. And then also there is this confrontation with what scares us. What frightens us? What frightens us existentially, economically, socially? Somehow, I think Jesus is saying, your money says in God we trust, but do you? Do I? How deep can I trust in the face of of my fears. Who knows the kind of story Mark is really telling here? I think I come back to the three key phrases that Jesus speaks. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. Do not go on fearing. Instead, trust. And finally, little girl, get up. I think about how we confront our fears. And being on the outdoor challenge trip just this past week, uh, we had 10, 11, 12-year-old kids confronting their fears every day. Uh, Going, rappelling over a cliff, crawling into a cave, being on a whitewater river, doing things that they had never done before, some of them way out of their comfort zone. And I remember when we asked them to reflect on how they were doing and what they were experiencing, they said things like, 
I, I have learned that I can't, what, whatever we're doing, I can't do it alone. Another one said, I, I've learned that I need to trust people. And so, in whatever place we find ourselves, maybe we will hear the words of Jesus saying, little girl or old gal, old boy, you with high blood pressure and arthritis, you with tattoos and tumors, you with an undiagnosed illness or a family member who doesn't want to get well, you who believe, you who sometimes believe, you who don't really believe anything, you who are happy and can hardly contain it, you who have forgotten what it is like to be happy, you who know where you are going and, and you who have no idea that you're getting anywhere. Get up, all of us. Get up, for the power that is in him is the power to give life, not just to a dead child, but to those who are only partly alive, people like us who live much of our lives closed to the wild beauty and miracle of life around us. It is this life-giving power that is at the heart of Mark's story about Jairus and this unclean woman and his daughter, and I believe it is at the heart of all the stories about Jesus, the power of new life, new hope, new being, whether we know it or not, I think that's what keeps us coming back here. It is the power to get up again when it is not easy to get up. It is the power to keep getting up and going on and fighting the long defeat, yet believing, trusting there is one who reaches out and takes our hand and raises us up. Amen.